You are listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Addie McCasland. This week's episode is sponsored by the Anne and Henry Zero Foundation, a philanthropic entity dedicated to lifting Tolsons out of poverty by supporting housing and shelter resources, social services and basic human needs, accessible health care, and programs that empower and inspire community members to improve their lives. Today, we have Mental Health Association Oklahoma's Chief Programs Officer, Mark Davis, talking with Dr. Xavier Amador, co-founder and CEO of the Henry Amador Center on Anisognosia and founder of the LEAP Institute. Dr. Amador is an internationally renowned clinical psychologist and forensics expert, and he is the author of nine books, including the bestseller, I Am Not Sick, I Don't Need Help. Additionally, he is a keynote speaker at the 2023 Zero Mental Health Symposium, themed New Horizons in Brain Science. We are so grateful to have Dr. Amador on today, and we're excited to share this insightful and engaging conversation between him and our own Mark Davis. The Mental Health Download starts now. Well, uh, first off, Dr. Javier Amador, I appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your day. Uh, my name is Mark Davis. I'm the Chief Programs Officer for Mental Health Association Oklahoma. Um, and as we were sharing uh, prior to uh, us setting the recording correctly, I've been in the field myself for about 25 years, and I've been uh, here at the Mental Health Association. It'll be my 20th year uh, here in about, I guess, five or six months. But I'm going to start with giving a, an introduction for you for the, the listeners that will see this. They'll know who you are and kind of what we're going to address. So Dr. Javier Amador is the co-founder and CEO of the Henry Amador Center on Anisognosia and founder of the LEAP Institute which has trained tens of thousands of clinicians, family members, law enforcement, justice officials, and legislators worldwide on the evidence-based LEAP method. Dr. Armador is an internationally renowned clinical psychologist, forensic expert, and leader in the field. He's written and authored nine books, including the bestseller, I'm Not Sick, I Don't Need Help, written for both professional and lay leaders. He shares research and practical advice on how to engage persons who are faced with challenges related to a mental health condition. So again, thank you for taking the time out of your day. It sounds like you got a pretty packed day, thanks to Jason and being off for a month. They they punish you for taking a little time off, don't they? I, I feel like I'm being punished, Mark. Yes. So <laughs> not, not not now with you. Not now with you. Right. <laughs> Appreciate that. So I'm I'm kind of going to go unorthodox because you've been on tens of thousands of these interviews, and they're they're kind of the 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 same setup, if you will. Uh, so I'm going to switch it up and bounce it around because I just hate being uh, run of the mill. That's not really my style. But I want to start off with the, the LEAP Foundation for Research. You changed the name to the Henry Amador Center for Anisognosia in April of 2021, correct? Yeah. 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 Uh, which was, again, having read your book and, and seen a lot of your, your talks, I, I kind of have an idea where that came from. But I, I do want to touch on something. There were a couple of key things that jumped out. One of the first passages on your website says, the name was chosen in memory of Henry Amador, who's your brother, eight years older than you, correct? Right. Um, a compassionate man diagnosed with schizophrenia in his 20s, who never believed he was ill, but ultimately accepted treatment and lived a fulfilling life because of his trusting relationship he developed with his brother. That would be you, Javier. And that right there was so powerful. The, the two key words, that trusting relationship. So many of us in academia and the clinical world, we've overlooked how 
important and how invaluable that is in the clinical setting. We start operating way out of the scope of what's needed for the individuals that we try and or attempt to serve. That resonated so heavily with me because I too have family members who themselves struggle at times with with mental health uh, issues and a combination of comorbidity and so on and so forth. That was really, uh, that was profound for me, just on an emotional level. And I think that encapsulates kind of the true, uh, one of the core tenets of of your book, the trusting relationship component. So again, as I shared earlier, I know you've had thousands of talks, but I think for our audience members, I think it will be helpful for them to know a little bit, if you don't mind, to, to know a little bit about your brother and, and those those phases in your life that ultimately brought you here through the steps you've taken. Because it's, it's just so powerful if people really, truly hear what, what you're saying. Thank you for that. And, you know, I was thinking as you were talking about the phrase trusting relationships that in, in all my training and all my early years in the field, and I started at, at the age of 23, working on an inpatient unit. And like you, I've worked in crisis teams, emergency rooms, uh, uh, residential treatments, uh, supported housing, inpatient units, the whole spectrum. What gets lost often, in my experience, is the, the, the primacy, how pivotal our relationships are with the people we're trying to help. Because without a relationship with, like, well, I'll talk about my brother. That's where you started out. Yeah. Without a relationship with my brother, Henry, where he felt like I listened to him, I I cared, you know, about what he had to say, and I respected it, he's never going to be interested in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And it's only through listening to him and being empathic and understanding and validating his experience that he's ever going to start to trust me. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, yeah. we're only interested in others' opinions when they're first interested in us, in our right. opinion. That's true. So, you know... In my career, which now has gone on, I can't believe I'm going to say this, 40 years I've been in this career, more every day, every day, Mark, I I am oriented and once again impressed with how we have nothing to offer unless we have a relationship where the person feels respected and that we don't judge them and they can start Mm -hmm. to trust us. So my brother and I, we went through hell. When he first became ill, with schizophrenia, he had anosognosia, that tongue twister of a, of oh, a yeah, worm. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't come up with it as a neurologist in 1919, Babinski came up with it, describing people, neurological patients who were unaware, for example, of paralysis in their body. Imagine you're, and I feel like this when I was in neurology service, paralyzing on your left side of your body and you don't know it. Mm-hmm. So that's, he came up with that. We now know that that's common in schizophrenia, schizoaffective and bipolar disorder. So my brother had this problem, this tongue twister of a brain symptom called anosognosia. And I didn't understand that. You know, I thought he was being stubborn and, and difficult. And my reaction to that symptom, to his saying, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not sick. I don't need your help, was to not listen, not respect that. And our relationship went to hell in a handbasket. I mean, right. it, yeah. he didn't want to talk to me about anything. And I, and I was frustrated and, and and thought he was being immature and irresponsible. And I stuff. think you used the words in, in one of your speeches, battles. 
Oh yeah, we were fighting. We were we were adversaries before we held hands. I mean, we were best friends. I right. mean, when he got sick, had that symptom that left him unable to see result, I was blind as well. And I just kept thinking, if I hit him over the head with education, I keep trying to convince him he's ill, he needs treatment, he needs help, he needs support, things will get better. That's like telling someone who's hallucinating, hey, cut it out, stop hallucinating. Right. I would never do that. But that's what I was doing with his belief. Nothing was wrong. I was saying, hey, cut it out. You know, you're ill. But he he didn't understand that. And it wasn't until I understood this was not under his control. And I started caring. I hope it's okay. I, the term I keep wanting to use is I started to give a shit. Yeah, no, that's perfectly fine. I started I mean, to give a shit about his, his experience. And yeah. so when he said to me, hey, Javi, my nickname's Javi. Hey, Javi, you know. I'm not mentally ill. You guys are the crazy ones, not me. I learned to, to reflect that back. So, Henry, what you're saying is we're crazy, not you. You got no mental illness, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he felt heard. He felt understood. I'm not agreeing with him. I'm reflecting it back and being empathic. And that shift in the way I talked with my brother and listened to him made a major change, not only in our relationship where we became friends again, but in his acceptance. That's what you said earlier. His acceptance of treatment, despite never believing he had a mental illness, never understanding or believing he had schizophrenia, he stayed in, on an antipsychotic medication given by injection for the rest of his life once I started focusing on our relationship, you know, and, and yeah. building trust. Yeah. You know, I was sharing with our CEO here at the association, her name is Terry White. Uh, we were in discussions and I said, you know, I've had his book for <laughs> several years. And she said, you know, I have this book too. Uh, but of course I, I read it, you know, uh, a few days back just to make sure I was clear and, and up to speed on all the concept and, and the ideas. But there's such a, an element of restoring a sense of integrity and humanity back to treatment of individuals who need our help. They're, they're not trying to be negative. That's not purposeful. No. Unawareness. So you touched on anisognosia, but just, just for the record, give a good solid definition of that. And then we'll kind of pivot from there. Cause I think okay. there's still a, a lack of understanding about it. Cause the first time I heard the term, it's sad to say it was only about eight years ago. Like, yeah. and it was yeah. just a, a flash in the pan and I didn't think about it after that and until several years later so yeah, it's it's, it's been it's been described and defined in the DSM since 2000 and it's it's still in the most recent DSM around schizophrenia and related disorders anisognosia it's a, it's a greek word it's a greek term which means a lack of illness awareness and and so just at the level of description if somebody goes for 3 6 months six years without understanding they have, let's say, schizophrenia, even though they've had ample opportunity to learn, they've been told they have the illness, they've been hospitalized perhaps, but they still, after three, six months, even longer, don't understand they, they have this illness, then they have anisognosia. And what that is, it, it involves the prefrontal and frontal cortex of the brain. We know there's anatomical differences and functional differences in people who don't understand they're ill, who have anisognosia, compared to people who understand they're ill. The good news, kind of the bad news too, but the good news is 50% of, of people with 
with schizophrenia, schizoaffective bipolar disorder, those, those illnesses, 50% understand they have illness. They, they have differing degrees of insight, but they understand they don't have anisognosia. That's the good news, because those are people who engage in treatment and recovery. Mm -hmm. The bad news is that the other 50%, like my brother Henry, have anisognosia. So that, and that is the top predictor of who will refuse treatment or drop out of treatment of any kind, whether mm -hmm. it's supported housing, peer support, medication, et cetera. Right. So 50% of the people that we are trying to serve and help don't want our help because they, they don't see and they don't understand that they're ill. So mm -hmm. we can't convince them of anything. What we can do, what works, what the research shows works, mm -hmm. is to create a relationship with them where they feel cared about, that we like them, maybe we even love them professionally. And we'd like them to be in treatment, for example. And so it's counterintuitive, but when you have that kind of relationship, people end up doing things for you. Like, okay, well, I'm not, not mentally ill, but if you really think I ought to be on this medication, I'll, I'll do it. I mean, that's how it works. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's fascinating because it, it is counterintuitive, at the same time, you have to wonder how we as the the clinical field, how we got so wayward, how we got so off track. And this information that, that you've been working your your entire life on, you know, 30, 40 years, you know, yeah. is, it, there's kind of an awakening uh, in, in, a, in a kind of an epiphany, uh, kind of a vast epiphany of, oh, wow, wait, hey, we do need to re-examine this. How do you think we got, as the, in the clinical psychiatry field, how we got so off target here? Or were we ever on target? I, I think, well, I think, in, yeah, I mean, if you look historically, I think some some theorists and leaders in the field were on target. Carl Rogers the founder of, you know, humanistic client-centered therapy, he got it. He, he understood that primacy of the therapeutic alliance, the relationship. Your patient had to feel not judged, respected, and that you liked them and you cared about them. And that that created positive change. I mean, he's one of the best examples. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the reason we lost it, Mark, is because uh, I'll, I'll just share. When I was working on an inpatient unit, people would come in, we'd help them get stabilized. They'd even if they had anisognosia, even though I didn't know that's what it was back then, they agreed to take medication because they had common sense. Even though I don't think I'm ill, I'll be, I'll be that person. Even though I don't think I'm ill, if I take their pills, they'll let me out of the hospital. And so I would see that happen and the person would be gone. And then three, four months later, they'd be back once again, ill. Right. Okay. And, and that's all I saw. And then in, in my clinical practice more broadly, right? Outpatient, private practice. And half of the patients in the hospital that I worked with all came to me because they wanted help. So it's it's a selection bias. Mm -hmm. The people that you and I get to work with the most are the people who want us the most. And they're the people who do not have anisognosia. They have awareness they understand they have a, difficulties and problems and challenges. They want our help. So that's what's happened. We've kind of ignored, we've not kind of, we have largely ignored that 50% of the population of, of people with these disorders. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I was sh sharing a lot of, you know, key tenets of your book in, in, a, in our morning management team meeting. And uh -huh. I, it was 
over the weekend, my my synapses was just firing. Like everything was just lit up. And I'm like, wow, the way you formatted it in a very academic layout in terms of the, the, the changing the narrative of the clinical field in, in terms of how to best and most effectively engage individuals who are trying to manage their mental health condition and live in recovery is that really is, in my opinion, the answer. And for those other 50% of the individuals that we've tried to force, coerce, battle, hospitalize into submission, <laughs> it's not going to work. I've never heard that term. I like that. I mean, I don't like it, but hospitalized into submission. And the other thing is the the revolving door person, the re revolving door patient, the so-called frequent flyer. Yeah. I mean, we're banned. We're putting band. Tagging on to that. I, and I'm glad you touched on the anatomical components of the brain. Uh, we have some major brain science nerds around here that are, are, are big into that, which is Ancient enough, New Horizons of Brain Science for 2023 Zero Mental Health Symposium. That's the, the name of our event coming up. Uh, touch a little on that, if you don't mind, because I, I think that's really fascinating for people to understand that, you know, this is not just a choice or a decision if, uh, someone is making not to engage in treatment. They there's a there's a real issue that needs to be recognized. There's only yes. so much you can do to address it. That's why I say recognize and to be understood on our end. I hope we'll have time to talk about how to address it because I, yeah. I love to talk about the LEAP approach. But let me answer your question. There's there's a lot of well-replicated studies indicating that there are a number of anatomical differences all lying within the prefrontal and frontal cortex. So for example, in the prefrontal cortex of the brain of people who don't understand they're ill for months and years, who have anisognosia, you see a reduction in gray matter. I mean, that's a profound difference to find. Do we find it every single time? Of course not. This is research. Research is on groups. But in addition to the brain looking different, and that's just one example of anatomical differences, we also can look at how the brain is working, functional differences. So functional imaging and neuropsychological studies find hypofrontality, underactivation of the frontal and prefrontal cortex, predicts who understands they have schizophrenia versus who does not understand. So if they're, they're hypofrontality, the brain is not functioning in the same way as it, what it does in the person who has awareness, you see unawareness, you see anisognosia. So not only does the brain look different, but it's working differently. Yeah. I want to share just a brief story. You know, again, having worked in the field for years, I always had pretty great success at helping to guide people and get people into treatment. And too often, I would always get asked, well, how do you do that? How are you so good at that? And every time I didn't feel like I was doing justice by explaining it, because I didn't feel like it was a technique, I'd say, man, I, I listened to them. I respected them. I <laughs> waited to use your expression, to use your acronym. I stepped back and listen wait. to what they were telling me my acronym that you might be referring to is wait why am i talking and and i asked myself that question if per someone's getting defensive they stop listening to me they're getting angry wait why am i talking just start listening leave with it, my ear not with my mouth you know? exactly that's exactly why i use that acronym 
it was a, it was your acronym, but I was like, man, that that's it. Like people need to wait more. We need to wait more <laughs> and listen and quit trying to push our agenda, which actually gets us as a segue into the next piece where you you talked about in your book and in discussing the leap approach or method the two top predictors of individuals who will accept treatment and you mentioned hey well one is if they know they're ill <laughs> well that's one but what about the other 50 percent you know how do you do that and i think that's where if you can segue into leaving kind sure. of breaking that down because i think that's a good way to good place to pivot yeah right? i think it's a great way to do it i mean it's the answer is the other top predictor is a particular kind of relationship. And, and this comes from the therapeutic alliance research. So it's a relationship where somebody feels, you've heard me, even if I'm talking about the CIA conspiracy or the alien transmitter in my brain, I feel heard and respected and not judged. Even if I'm talking about, I don't have bipolar, I don't have schizophrenia, the person I'm talking to whether it's a clinician or a family member or a police officer or a judge, we trained all these kinds of folks in the LEAP method. If that person doesn't contradict me and is listening and being empathic, I'm much more interested in following their advice. It's, it's that simple. So it's a relationship where, this is what the research indicates, person feels respected, not judged, listened to, and they become open to our opinions, to our suggestions, to our recommendations. And here's the thing about our recommendations. We don't say, because you have, for example, schizophrenia, we think you ought to try this medication. We say, I'd just like you to try this medication. Well, why? I just think it might be helpful to you. Why don't you give it a try? So, you know, we disengage from labels and we really focus on the interpersonal space. That's how LEAP works. Mm -hmm. And LEAP stands for listening, you know, what you and I are talking about. Empathize really strategically and normalize what the person's feeling. So, you know, I'd feel the same way. Everyone's telling you you're mentally ill and, and you know you're not. That's reflective listening. I'm not agreeing. I'm saying everybody's telling me if I got this straight. Everybody's telling you you're mentally ill and you know you're not. That must be frustrating. Does it make you angry? Yeah, it makes me angry. Now I'll normalize it. You know, I'd be angry too. So that's the empathy part. And then the A in LEAP stands for looking for areas where we can agree. If the person has anisognosia, we are not going to agree that they have a mental illness. So what can we agree on? Things like finding meaningful work, finding love, housing, getting out of the hospital. If they're in the criminal justice system, getting out from under the criminal justice system. There's so many things we can agree on, and that's what we partner on. That's the P and LEAP. There's three other tools in the tool belt that we teach, the communication tool belt how to give your opinion in a, in a humble, respectful way, things that you might want to apologize for, and then delaying giving difficult decision opinions. Mm -hmm. So somebody asked me, well, do you think I'm mentally ill? I don't want to tell them right away that I, yeah, I think you have a diagnosis. I'll try to delay. You know, I promise I answer that question before I do, Mark. Could you tell me more about how you ended up in the hospital? Would that be okay? That's the nature of that, that delaying tool. If the person still wants to know my opinion, no, I want to know right now. And then with the LEAP method, we give it using the three A's. We apologize. We acknowledge we could be wrong. We ask the person not to argue, right? Agree to disagree. So let's say you have illness, a disorder. You ask me, do I think you're ill? I try to delay. You say, no, I want to know. Mark, I'm really sorry. I could be wrong. 
from what I see, it looks like you've got this disorder that, that they diagnosed you with. I hope we don't have to argue about it. I mean, that's a very different way of giving your opinion. That's a respectful, non-judgmental way than saying flat out, well, Mark, yes, I, I think you have schizophrenia. Right. <laughs> Real yeah. different. Yeah, so. it, it's a great deal different. And it goes back to that developing or trying to foster, facilitate a, a respectful kind of relationship and the connection and, and being thoughtful of the other person and not pushing a prescriptive agenda that may not be mutually agreed upon, right? You you talk about that mutuality, like what is it? I think, again, not everyone, but I think in, in our field too often, we set an expectation of creating uh, a treatment plan for somebody instead of a recovery agreement, mm. right? And you touched on that kind of verbiage in, in your book, if, if I recall. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, treatment is 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 short-sighted and narrow. Recovery, and it's also not person-centered. Recovery is person-centered. That's what, You want to talk to me about my life and talk to me about recovering from the difficulties I have, whether I define them as illness or difficulties and challenges. Talk to me about that and give me tools and suggestions so that I can recover. And what does recovery mean to me? There's lots of definitions out there. Engagement and meaningful activity and having relationships and love in your life. It's meaningful, you know, it's work and love. Meaningful work. It doesn't have to be paid work. It can be volunteer work. And, and so recovery is a much more mutual process from the get-go mm -hmm. about recovery. And it's, it's person-centered. It's their definition of what they want to see happen to be in recovery. Whereas treatment is top-down. You need this, and this is what's going to happen to you. And, and if, you know, if you're engaged in shared decision-making, that's an important you know, concept. It's not so top-down, but it's still hierarchical. It's still the prescribers, the expert, and you're not. And mm -hmm. you're asked to engage, you're asked to make decisions together. I mean, that's a, that's a good scenario, but it's still hierarchical. Recovery, yeah. the, the individual is, is a little bit, they're the expert. Uh -huh. What do you, what do you want in your life? What do you want to do to succeed? What do you want to see change? You know? Yeah. I, I like the intentionality being the, the clinician or the service provider of kind of, of disbanding that sense of authority. You kind of touched on that too. And yeah. you, you repeated back, you said you've often used, Hey, your, your opinion is way more valuable than mine here. I think that's a good reminder for a lot of us and it's a good lesson too so from kind of a lesson educational standpoint could you kind of more well i'm a little confused because in your introduction of me you talked about you know all the great things i've done and how what an expert i am so isn't my opinion more important it's, it's not right. I don't know how much education expertise or how well known a person is as a clinician my opinion does not matter a squat if the person I'm working with has a different opinion because their opinion determines their decisions and their behavior. So their opinion is the most important opinion in the, in the interaction in the room. And, and when I say that to, to people I'm working with, with mental illness, with mental health conditions, they're often surprised when and they'll say things like, well, you're the doctor. I'm like, well, yeah, but this is 
your life, you're the expert. You're going to do what your best judgment tells you to do. You're not going to necessarily do what I'm suggesting you do. So your opinion is more important. Your opinion drives your behavior. My opinion could just be a bunch of hot air, you know? Right. It's almost like our opinion results in short-term immediate treatment. Your opinion results in long-term successful independent recovery. You know, I like that. Well said, really well said. Yeah. It's more valuable and important to the individual. Cause like, as you said, once you walk out of this facility, it's, it's your opinion and your choices and your decisions. But the other thing you're saying that you're emphasizing is that that person's opinion is, has a lifelong impact. Whereas my opinion, short-term and especially in an acute care setting has a very, very short-term impact, very short-term. It, it lasts as long as they can get to the front door. <laughs> when they're on the sidewalk, it, it's over. Especially if they have, especially if they have anosognosia. I mean, the non, non-adherence, non-engagement and treatment, non-compliance rate, whatever you want to call it, is 75%. Wow, yeah, so, yeah, you, you touched on that. That's some serious stats right there. Yeah. Like, yeah. what, 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 what should we expect as, as in the clinical world with that knowledge that you just shared? If, well, if you- we, know, we know if people have anosognosia, their majority will not be in treatment. What's the exception? When we develop a, a collaborative alliance with them in the way we've been talking about with the LEAP approach, when we've done that, that's the exception. Then we can engage someone in treatment. I'll go back to my brother. Nearly 20 years till the end of his life, he was taking injections of antipsychotic medication. And I asked him just a year before he, he passed, and he passed, he didn't die from his illness. He died of being a good Samaritan, actually, on, on, a, on the street and had a car accident. I said, Henry, do you think you have schizophrenia? People asked me because he knew I talked about him. He had a copy of I'm Not Sick, I Don't Need Help. It's dedicated mm-hmm. to him. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he ever read it, but I'm <laughs> real proud of it and really thankful. And yeah. He laughed when I asked him. I said, people ask me, do you, does your brother think he has schizophrenia? And I, so I asked him, I said, what do you think? You know, we haven't talked about it in a long time. And he laughed and he says, no, I don't have schizophrenia. So then I asked a million dollar question. I said, so why in the world? And this is the way I asked it. Well, why in the world are you taking these injections? You know what his answer was? I think you might know. He said, I do it for you, for me, and for mom and pops. And mom and pops were this couple, Betty and James, that ran the supported living house that he lived in. Right. Wow. That relate. What's his, what's his answer? I do it for relationships. Yeah. And that, again, if you remember, I highlighted that that's the first passage on your website and and right in there is that trusting relationship that was developed between he and you, which was again, just so core to your philosophy, to your research, to your leap method, uh, to your center, you know, so man, just really powerful. And and again, I think it's a reminder, a lot of us that have gotten kind of, we lost our ways as in some respects as the clinical arena. But again, as I was saying earlier, I've always had good success and I never, I knew it was effective, but I didn't really know why <laughs> I didn't know why I was just like, man, I, I respect the guy. He sees that I can respect him. I, I wait, I listen. I don't push what I want on him. I ask him what he wants and then I help him obtain that. That's how I did that, you know? 
And you just, you hit everything right on target. It was re- it was reassuring for me because you have it backed up with research and years and years of, of science and data and and, and the, the whole thing. So, wow, I'm, I'm, I've already bought like four or five of these books for people that I'm sending out. And I, and I am going to come back to that because I do know a lot of family members and I'm being serious because I, I, I do help families respond to situations where they have daughters and sons and family members or a husband that, you know, has struggles. And I am going to highly recommend this, this book to them and, and send it to them. So I'll, I'll definitely be doing that. But circling back, there was one part I was really fascinated about because I I've seen your 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 book actually eradicates some myths too, and here's one of them. Well, be careful about feeding into the delusion. You, they said that their their puppy is going to attack somebody, and he's right there, and you just agreed with them about his puppy, and he's not. You're going to exacerbate the issue. Talk a little bit about that because there's a lot of People go back and forth on that. Yeah. You know. In our trainings, you know, or one-on-one when I'm teaching somebody how to use what we call leap reflective listening, the reflective listening that we teach in a leap approach. And I give them an example. So here's an example. Somebody says to me, you know, my problem is that there's people trying to kill me. And I know that you're one of them. I know you're involved with that group. And here's reflective listening. So listen, if I heard you, I'm with the people who are trying to kill you. Did I did I hear that right? That's reflective listening. Now, some people, when I when I'm doing these trainings and I give that example or others like it, say, "Whoa, you can't do that. You're validating the belief. You're colluding with the delusion." Well, I'm not. I'm not saying, "Hey, you're right. I'm trying to kill you." <laughs> I'm saying, "Let me see if I understood. What you're saying is I'm with the people who are trying to kill you. Did I get that right?" And you know, Delusions are, by definition, fixed false beliefs, fixed. So I've never talked somebody out of a delusion. And by reflective listening, I'm not going to talk them into a delusion. So that is a myth. Uh, You know, by using reflective listening, you are not colluding. You are not validating. You are not making a delusion worse. You can't do it. Uh I think it works. Yeah, which is why I, and I think you have some training videos on we your do. website as well, which maybe you can touch on here in a little bit as we, when we get ready to wrap this up here in about another 15 minutes or so, because I think clinicians, case managers, certified peer recovery support specialists, therapists, I think we all need to have this skill set and this in our tool belt and our clinical repertoire in order to influence or help guide behavior or bring about a level of understanding and comprehension as it relates to someone's health challenges. I think knowing where to pivot after, so you say I'm with this group of individuals who are trying to kill you, you know, the next step is where do I pivot from there? How do you follow that conversation to where you don't create an argument and separation? Right. Or be dishonest and start to say, well, yeah, there are people trying to kill you. Leap is 100% honest. You don't pretend to believe things that you don't believe. Uh, On our websites, there's two websites. There's leapinstitute.org. And then there's HA Center. This doesn't mean HA Center. It means Henry Mm -hmm. Amador. 
hacenter.org. Both of them have uh, about a dozen videos. They're free, explaining LEAP, role-playing LEAP, working with actors. So one, one of the videos is how to offer a long-acting injectable medication. Another one is a, a client of mine missed his appointment for an injection. I get him on the phone. We talk about it using the LEAP approach. Another is a young couple where the, the the wife sees that her husband, after a hospitalization, has thrown his medication away. And she goes and talks to him. And she uses the usual approach that I did with my brother early on, and it doesn't end well. And then she does it again. We redo it, and she does it with the leap approach. And through it all, I'm narrating and, and describing, and we're freeze-framing, and we're teaching, teaching, teaching yeah. how to use this approach. It's not complicated. There's only seven communication techniques or tools really happy with the videos we've been able to offer and they're free mm -hmm. so really encourage anybody who's interested in our conversation to go to hacenter.org or leapinstitute.org resources free videos yeah and i think woven probably in those teachings is your as you i'm going to use your acronym so you'll have to expound upon it that you use a DOA method. Uh, <laughs> and your explanation is brilliant for it because you're correct. But could you kind of talk a little bit about that? Because yeah, I well, think that's right on target. You I can see why your patients like you. You really <laughs> you really pay attention and listen. DOA stands for uh, dead on arrival, right? And the reason that's for three of the tools. So LEAP has four tools: listen, empathize, agree, partner. Then there's DOA, the other three tools I mentioned. Delay giving opinions that are going to be hurtful or, or, or conflicting or contrary. Oh, give your opinion with the three A's, with humility. So apologize, acknowledge your fallibility, ask the person to not argue. So that's D-O. And then A is apologies generally. Apologize for an involuntary admission. Apologize for testifying at a commitment hearing. Apologize for not doing something the person asked you to do. So DOA is delay giving these hurtful opinions. If you can, give your opinion, the O, in a very humble way. I could be wrong. You know, I don't want to argue with you. Mm -hmm. you since you asked, here's what I think. That's why we want to delay. We want the person to ask us. Right. And then the A in DOA is, is apologize for, for acts and interactions that were, were hurtful to the person. Yeah, uh, you, you touched on garnering a lot of respectful real estate. When you can delay an opinion, especially if you know it's it's you know there's not going to be received well, and then you also pointed out how if you can if you can have the conversation enough to learn more about the individual to listen more, when you get them to where they actually want your opinion, mm -hmm. they want to hear that they they want to talk a little bit about that because that. Well right there that's that's, that's one of the reasons we delay it's one of the big reasons is we yeah. want our opinion to be solicited when i'm in front of a, a, a you know a group live i mean I'm, I'm live with you but you're not a woman so i'll ask the women in the group hey how many of you have, have had a child and, and, and you know a bunch of women raise their hands how many of you this is my next question got free advice unwanted from strangers on the street and the hands stay up and, and the women start laughing and then I ask people, shout out, how did it feel? And I hear things like patronizing, intrusive, uh, you know, it made me angry, et cetera. And then I, I make this observation. 
I say, I bet each and every one of you had a trusted loved one, a mother, a sister, a good friend, an aunt, who during your first pregnancy, you asked for their advice. And I get a lot of heads nodding. And here's the point I make. And this is why we delay giving our opinion if we can. I said, in that circumstance, you know, we want to be that trusted loved one. We want to be asked for our opinion. We don't want to be the stranger on the street who's giving an unsolicited opinion. So, so that's the reason we delay. That's one of the reasons. We want our opinion to be asked for. We want it to be solicited. We want to be that trusted you know, loved one, yeah. not the stranger on the street. The other reason we delay is that we can get the person talking some more, what, what you just said a few minutes ago, and that's more opportunity for reflective listening and empathy. Absolutely. And the way we delay is to say, I promise I'll answer your question before I do. Could you tell me more about, you know, what happened last night or how you ended up in the hospital or right. what happened with the police, whatever. Get the person talking, reflect back what they're saying, be empathic, build that respectful, trusting relationship. Love it. Love it. You know, tens of thousands of individuals have been trained. I'm, I'm so pleased that there's certain groups that are definitely getting this training. And uh, all areas of discipline, whether yeah. it's judicial systems, clinics, law enforcement. I know we have CIT, but this is a little more in depth. I'm I'm so thrilled that this is catching on, and and you all are probably worn the soles off your your leather Johnson Murphys going out training folks with this method because it is very key in in trying to help those better understanding and, and gain some awareness uh, to see the benefits of engagement and treatment. So, so happy to hear that. And, and with LEAP, I think I read a snippet. I'm sure it's probably a lot more information out there, but it, what, did I hear that it was, that it was used with substance abuse treatment? Could you talk a little bit about yeah. that? I, that's pretty fascinating, but talk a little bit about that. Well, we, I, I've had a lot of colleagues, including researchers, write to me talking about success with LEAP with their substance abusing clients and research being done on that. And I'm not surprised because LEAP draws from three psychological traditions. One is Carl Rogers' client-centered therapy, and it's about developing this relationship, right, where the person feels respected and cared for. The other is cognitive behavioral therapy, and there's specific techniques in there. But the third area, to answer your question, the third school of thought that it draws from is motivational interviewing. And motivational interviewing has been around for decades. And for what purpose and what has been researched, you know, what, re what is the research on? Use with substance abuse disorders, people with substance abuse problems. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising to me that the kind of reflective listening we teach, the kind of problem solving that's integral to the LEAP approach, which is consistent with motivational interviewing, ends up being helpful with people who have substance use problems. Oh, okay. Short Thanks answer you. is we hear about it a, a lot. I hear about people using it. And and I can tell you in my own work, because there's so many comorbid comorbidities. So a lot of people I'm working with, with schizophrenia, schizoaffective bipolar disorder, also have substance use problems. So I can tell you personally, clinically, I've used this approach with mm -hmm. people who have both issues going on. Okay. So, so on the substance abuse track to isolate the two, do you have any statistics or, or success rates on the, the, the impact 
the effect of utilization of, of leave specifically for substance abuse related challenges? I, we have not done that research. And I haven't looked to see if other people have done that research. I'm guessing it hasn't been done because I would think they'd let me know. But yeah. now that we're talking about it, I, I think I'm going to do a little, a little yeah. search. See. I was trying to dig a little bit because I can see with Carl Rogers person centered, which was always a favorite of mine because it, it just felt good. It, it just felt <laughs> right. Right. And then motivational interviewing that, that was so natural. So I, I can see that, but thank you so much for that. Given that background and, and that explanation. Uh, Cause again, like I said, I had read a little bit about that and was like, wow, okay. I like having this in the tool belt for that. And I just started to formulate ways in order to administer this approach with more substance use related challenges. It's also, it's also been used with persons with eating disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, depression. It's also been used with people who have insight, who have awareness. Mm -hmm. Let's bring it back to what it's really about. It's about the therapeutic alliance. It's about relationships. If you're a police officer, it's about quickly establishing a relationship where the person trusts you enough to cooperate. Mm -hmm. If you're a judge, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you've got an hour, 45 minutes or 45 seconds, mm -hmm. how you take that time and what you do with it to build a relationship is what matters. Yes, completely agree. So Along with that, you mentioned the eating disorders, substance abuse. Uh, what about personality disorders? I, interesting enough, I was walking through my office and I got into a conversation with one of my colleagues. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm about to interview Dr. Amador on the podcast. I, was, I never thought to ask him about personality disorders. I'm sure you have some experience in work, working with in, in individuals with uh, personality disorders. Could you talk a little bit about any efficacy yeah. related to that? Yeah, I don't have any research on it. Uh, we, it certainly hasn't been a focus of our research. Our research has been on the, the disorders we've mostly been talking about. But I can tell you personally, working with people with, with borderline personality, with uh, the, you can't overuse empathy and that active listening. Mm -hmm. And if it does nothing else, it helps the person de-escalate if they're agitated. But more important, it creates a bond between me and that person where they have an interest. If I've listened to them and been empathic, they now have an interest, typically, mm -hmm. my suggestions. Yeah, absolutely. And then as I'm channeling some of my individuals that I work with and colleagues and friends, I would imagine that some individuals who are, are not in the field, who are non-clinicians, that are, are lay persons that may hear this, what types of advice would you give them on how to best engage their loved ones as they attempt to try to interact with them before they can get them to a licensed clinical professional? What what suggestions would you give the non-clinician who may be hearing this? Well, you know, most of the people we train, about 60% are family caregivers. So if, if you go to either one of those websites, hacenter.org or leapinstitute.org, you'll see videos for families there, family members. My, my best advice, honestly, is advice I wish I had taken myself when my brother first became ill which is stop and listen and listen to the impact of what you say. So if your loved one is ill for the first time, a first hospitalization, of course, you're going to talk to them about what the, hey, the doctors told me you've got schizophrenia. This is what they told me it's about. This is the treatment you need to be on. And if your loved one responds with, there's nothing wrong with me, you're the crazy one, not me, wait, <laughs> why am I talking anymore about this 
education about their illness they don't understand they have. Start listening. Start using active listening. Pay attention, active attention to what your loved one is feeling and thinking and saying about this whole thing that happened. I'm going to let you finish filling the dots on here. But you shared basically, what do they have to lose? Uh, right, right. Right. You said, what What? What do you have to lose? You, you've been battling with, with your son or daughter or your cousin or brother for how long? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? You've got yeah, to How many times? This is one of the questions I often ask. You obviously know this from, from your research and reading my, my, my work, but you know, I'll, I'll ask a family member, how how long have you been trying to convince your son or daughter that they're mentally ill? Oh, you know, 10 years. Has it worked? Well, no, that's why we're coming to see you, Dr. Amador. Then I'll, then I'll say, well, do you know Einstein's definition of insanity? And they start to smile, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And then I was like, maybe your, your son or daughter is right when they say you're the insane one, not me. Because yeah. <laughs> it's insane to keep trying to do the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result. That is so powerful. Homage to you. I read through your book. There were so many. It doesn't matter that I've been in the field as long as I, I learned so much. I was reminded of so much. I changed my narrative and my perspective of, of so much. It helped me define my technique and approach as well because I was just like hey I'm just me I just <laughs> but, but there was reason purpose behind what I was doing and and you help kind of package that and, and and bring about structure and and it's helping me to be a better clinician as I hope it does for others who listen to this and go out and and purchase your book and and get the necessary tools that they need in order to establish a harmonious respectful, trusting mutual relationship to ultimately um, results in them, the individuals who they love getting the treatment that they so choose. That's what we hope comes out of all of this. And I want to thank you again for taking the time with me, our Zero Symposium this year, 2023, New Horizons in Brain Science. Although this has been around, you wrote this book, I think originally somewhat 25 years or somewhere in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's still opening minds. Feel good about that. Thank you. Yeah, so that's great. And I, I want to thank you so much for giving You're me welcome. this hour. And I'm going to let you go hug your daughter, man. All right. I got to say goodbye. <laughs> She's going off the, the, before we get, we started recording. I right. Telling, all right. Telling, I was telling Mark, I got to say goodbye to my daughter. Who's <laughs> off studying, studying psychology of all oh, things. Per, well, oh, I never would have guessed that. Uh, all right. Her, her journey, not mine. Mark, right. great talking thank to you. you. Javier Amador, thank you so much. We'll thank see you. you soon. Okay, look forward to it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We really hope you enjoyed the dialogue between Dr. Xavier Amador and Mark Davis. To learn more about Dr. Amador's research or purchase one of his books, please visit www.hacenter.org. And if you or someone you love needs assistance with mental health resources, including housing, please visit our website at www.mhaok.org. Thank you for listening to the Mental Health Download.